All right, if you would open your Bibles with me to Acts 2, 41 to 47. Acts 2, 41 to 47. If you don't have your Bible with you, uh, you can grab one of those white paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. If you take that Bible open to page 531, you'll get to Acts 2. 2 is the chapter number, that's the big number. And then verses 41 to 47, those are the smaller numbers um, in between each of the sentences. And so you can um, grab that Bible, 531, go to Acts 2, 41 to 47. Well, let's dig into this community. This is a community described by the evangelist, Luke. Luke the evangelist, Dr. Luke, the man, Luke. If you want to stand with me as we read God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and with joy, for this is the voice of our God. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching in the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you bless the reading and the preaching of your word with the power of your spirit? Would you pour out your spirit on us now and cause us, Lord, to be convicted and comforted and built up in the truth of the gospel? Would you sanctify us in your truth, Lord? Your word is truth. Would you let the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord, our rock, our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Well, we've been looking at this uh, marvelous picture that Luke paints for us here in Acts 2, 41 to 42, this marvelous picture of this, of this church. Uh, and we've been doing this because we know what it looks like for us to be a, a devoted church, a spirit-filled church, a church that follows Jesus, a church devoted to uh, obeying the Great Commission. And we've kind of narrowed in, what we've kind of narrowed in on is uh, that they devoted themselves to these corporate practices, these what, what Christians often call the means of grace. And uh, the way w- that we've been defining the means of grace is this. They're the ordinary ways through which God builds his church. They're the ordinary ways through which God makes us into Christians and grows us as Christians. They're the ordinary ways through which the Spirit is present to sanctify His people. They're the ordinary ways that the Spirit takes what Christ did 2,000 years ago and imparts them to us today. And this church, they devoted themselves to the means of grace. And so we've just kind of been walking through each of these and defining them and hearing the call to be devoted to these communal practices. This church devoted themselves, we looked at last week, to the apostles' teaching. 
That is, they devoted themselves to the Word of God, particularly listening to the preaching, the, the reading, the preaching, the teaching of God's Word when they were assembled together. They devoted themselves to what are often called the ordinances or the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they devoted themselves to praying together. And all of these took place in the midst of this fellowship, this local church fellowship of people that were devoted to one another. Okay, and so a few Sundays ago, we started with just looking at this word devoted here in Acts 2.42, and we tried to define what the means of grace were. And last Sunday, we started with walking through these practices one by one. We saw that they devoted themselves to beginning with the apostles' teaching, and we looked at the message and the practice of apostolic teaching. And one of the things I said uh, that, that may have stepped on your toes a, a little bit, or that may, have been, may seem a little foreign to you, was that devotion to reading and listening to the Bible read and preached in the context of a local church community is more primary in the Christian life than personal private Bible reading. In other words, devoting ourselves to what is taking place here on Sunday mornings together is more important in biblical spirituality than what takes place in your quiet time when you wake up in the the morning. Now, I should say, personal devotions, quiet times, whatever you want to call it, uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of those. I, I de- I've devoted myself to that practice. I, I commit myself to that practice. I do it every single morning, often in the evenings also before I go to bed. Uh, I've coached many people on how they can implement and devote themselves to that sort of practice in their own lives. It's needed. It's necessary. Please don't ever neglect that sort of practice of personal, private Bible reading. But one of the problems that we've sort of encountered in, in our kind of church culture in the West is the mindset that, that Bible reading is essentially a, a personal and private activity. We approach the Bible with this undergirding belief that, that it's meant to be interpreted and applied to us as individuals. We, often we come to the Bible with one big question, what is this saying to me? What is this saying to me as an individual? But this is a problem because the the Bible wasn't really written to individuals. The the, the Bible, for the most part, was written to community. The Old Testament was written to pretty much exclusively the Old Testament church, the nation of Israel. And the New Testament, the, the New Testament generally filled with letters to particular local churches and cities like Rome and Galatia and Ephesus and the rest. Uh, they weren't written to individuals. Uh, there were some letters written to individuals, pastors in these churches, but they were written for the good of those churches that they were pastoring. And so a better question to ask when we come to a text rather than is what is God saying to me here is what is God saying to his church? What, what is God saying to the church that I am particularly sharing life with? Listening to the Bible read and explained and applied in a local church community is more primary in the Christian life than, than private Bible reading. Because biblical spirituality, New Testament Christianity, is more corporate and communal and relational than it is individual. Okay, so it's certainly, it's, cert- it's intensely personal, but it's not private. It's not a private spirituality that you commit yourself to only in private. Christian spirituality is primarily a communal, corporate, public spirituality. 
So while in our, in our Western culture, our Western Christian culture, spirituality is, is assumed to be private and spiritual growth, a concern merely of the individual, that's generally foreign to what we see in the people of God throughout biblical history. That's foreign to what we see in this church here in the New Testament. They saw themselves fundamentally as members of a community, members of the body of Christ, part of the people of God, not as scattered individuals. These early Christians saw true Christianity, true Jesus following as participation in a local body of believers. And that's what we see here in this word that we're looking at this morning. Last week we saw that this church devoted themselves to the corporate practice of listening to the Bible, being read and explained and applied in the context of the local church community by the apostles. And in the coming weeks we're going to look at how this church devoted themselves to the practices of baptism and the Lord's Supper and prayer together. But we're going to look at this morning the, the type of community, the kind of community that all of this took place in. This morning we're going to look at this word, the fellowship. In Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. And so the apostles, they, they didn't go around, and the early church didn't just go around evangelizing uh, people and, and then making individual converts that went home and just had really great quiet times. That's not, that's not what they did. They, they planted churches. They made disciples. There was fellowship. We don't just all go our separate ways and, and devote ourselves to the means of grace as individuals. We devote ourselves to them in our common life together. We devote ourselves to them in fellowship with one another. And so if you think of these means of grace as a meal, you know, you have your main course, the steak, or if you're a vegetarian, you have a little, uh, like a bean loaf. Um, I don't know. Uh, but you have, some, you have the main course. That's the apostles' teaching, right? That's the apostles' teaching. Any rightly ordered church is going to be centered on the word of God, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the most important part. And then you have your sides of broccoli, maybe a wild rice medley, uh, those would be uh, the, the ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper, and, and prayer, and prayer. But what do you think the fellowship would be in the meal? It, it would have to be maybe the, the plate that the means of grace are served on. Uh, and that, that's not a, a perfect analogy. The word of God is actually the foundation that the church is built on. But I share all that. Say these practices, these means of grace, they take place within the fellowship of believers who are committed to one another as they're committed to Christ. That's what we call a local church. All of these are to take place in a community of committed believers. Devotion to Christ, devotion to these practices require and cultivate and call us to and take place in and propel us into devotion to one another, to fellowship. And that should inevitably lead to us living life together and being sacrificially generous to one another. And so the big idea for, the mor for this morning is this. We're called to, de to be devoted to the fellowship which leads to living life together and being sacrificially generous to one another. We're called to be devoted to the fellowship, which leads to living life together and being sacrificially generous to one another. And we'll unpack that big idea under two headings. First, we'll look at the definition of fellowship, of the fellowship, and, and then we'll look at devotion to it. The definition of it and then devotion to it. Now, it's extraordinarily important that we define the fellowship uh, because one of the most abused and misused words in Christian circles is this word fellowship. And that's saying a lot because there are a lot of misused and abused words in Christian circles. One of my favorite YouTube videos of all time is called Shoot Christian Say. Uh, it's, it's great. 
And uh, it's these two guys, they're just saying words and phrases over and over again that are constantly repeated and used and abused in, in Christian circles uh, until the point that it's nauseating. Um, Guard your heart was one that they mentioned. Yeah, that's from Proverbs 4.23. And it's inspired scripture. It's spirit-inspired. It's true. But the way that it's used kind of in youth group culture often, the way that they're making fun of is, is that it's often reduced to just meaning, uh, you know, don't get too romantically involved with someone unless you, you break your heart. Or another word that drives me mad in this way that's so often used uh, and abused is, is uh, this word kingdom, kingdom, and it's getting worse and worse. Uh, it, often in Christian circles, we just use the word kingdom to mean like social justice. Skinny jeans people use it to, to mean like social justice or, or the common good, uh, which we should be devoted uh, and we should be advocates for social justice and we should be devoted to working hard for the common good, but that's not what the word kingdom means. But my friends, out of all the misused words in all the misused villages in Christendom, misused word villages in in Christendom, there's one that is chief among them all. There's one that is the most abused in all the land, and it's this word fellowship. It's this word fellowship. So often the sort of picture that comes to mind when when we use the word fellowship is, is like the TV show Friends. Uh, just a bunch of people who hang out together and have fun and, and do completely worthless things together. That's, that's what we think of when we think of fellowship. We, we, we use this word as just meaning like mere socializing, just, just hanging out while maybe we have snacks and, and punch. We call game nights and parties fellowshipping. When we want to hang out with someone, we text them and ask, hey, do you want to get together for some fellowship? We call what we do before and after service fellowship. Now hear me, things like hanging out and punch and parties and game nights and snacks are wonderful. I love snacks. And we should, we should do things like that. And we should do them more and more. But we cannot reduce fellowship to mere socializing and hanging out. This word is much deeper and much more sacrificial than that. The word translated as fellowship here is the word koinonia. Koinonia, you've maybe heard that word before. It means to share in common with. It means to have a share in something or sharing with someone in something. It's often translated as, as a fellowship or communion or partnership or participation or sharing or association. This word is, is used in 1 Corinthians 10.16 when Paul talks about the Lord's Supper. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, a, a fellowship, a koinonia, in the, blo- in the blood of Christ, the, the bread that we break, is it not a participation, a fellowship, a koinonia in the body of Christ? He's saying that when we receive the bread and the cup, we're communing with the body and blood of Jesus and we're, rece- we're sharing in the benefits of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And we're going to look at that in a bit more in a few weeks. Um, or in Philippians 3.10, we see Paul say that he has given up everything so that, he says, so that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, the, the participation, the koinonia of his sufferings, the sharing of his sufferings. But here we're not looking at specifically sharing in the sufferings of Christ or, or, or the, the communion that we have with the body and blood of Jesus at the table. We'll see how that connects later. But, but here we see that, that this, this fellowship, this communion that Christians enjoy with one another in Christ. It's a sort of union, a oneness that comes from our common commitment 
an agreement. It's a deep, eternal bond that we have with one another in Christ. We, we have a share in one another. So, so rather than thinking of like friends, think of Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. I'm just getting super nerdy on you. The, the Fellowship of the Ring was this community centered around this common agreement and commitment and purpose. As Christians, we have fellowship with one another. We have oneness, we have union, we have communion with one another. We have a shared purpose and agreement and commitment with one another. And in this church in Acts 2, and for our church today, where, where, where does this union and this oneness come from, do you think? Does it come from our, our common interest in bowling or OSU football or essential oils? Or does it come from our, our common interest in, in woodworking? None of that. Does it come uh, from our, 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 our common interest in, in, in things like having a similar stage of life? Or how about ethnicity or, or income level? Or, or maybe they had fellowship groups or like particular uh, groups of people, categories of people, men's ministry or women's ministry. Or maybe they had, they had other things like small groups or people in a particular stage of life. They didn't have any of that. They didn't have any of that. Because they knew that what they had in common was something much more glorious than race or sex or age group or life stage or political affiliation. What they did have in common, what we talked about last week, what they had in common was this apostolic message. They had the apostolic message in common. They had a shared savior. They had a shared salvation, a shared hope, a shared purpose, a shared future. They had what Ephesians 4, 5 says in common. They had one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. They had what, what uh, 1 John 1, 3, the Apostle John writes about. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship, our koinonia, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And here in this fellowship, Galatians 3.28 says there's no Jew or Greek. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. As Harold Best once put it, as we are commonly in Christ, we are also in one another. We have communion. We have union with one another. We have fellowship, participation with one another. That's what created this fellowship, this partnership. And this church in Acts, they, they spoke different languages. They're from different parts of the world. I'm sure that they had all sorts of different opinions on politics and, and different interests and vocations, but they had this apostolic message in common. They had one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. And so they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to one another. They devoted themselves to the communion of saints. They devoted themselves to the partnership that they had in the gospel. You know, we, we live in an age where we are obsessed with getting things tailor-made just for us. We build our own Chipotle burritos to our exact specifications. I want this much rice, a little bit of beans, double meat, absolutely, every time. A uh, little bit of sour cream, lots of cheese. I mean, restaurants like that are becoming more and more common. 
We each have our own smartphones that are tailored, like we build them specifically. We get our own apps. We get our own social media, our own news sources, our own apps, games, all these things tailored specifically for us. It used to be that, that uh, families just had one TV in a bed, like in a shared common area living room, but now every individual, each person in the home has their own TV with their own shows being scheduled so that they can watch them whenever they want. Everything's made, tailor-made specifically for the individual. And often we just treat church the same way. We do this really super weird thing called church shopping. We try to find a church tailor-made specifically for us. I'm not talking about visiting a couple of churches to find the right one for you. I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about church shopping. You know, going to all these different churches to see... Find the right one that has the right programs for your kids and the right music, the kind of music that you like and and all these other silly peripheral things. And if a church meets all of our exact specifications, we'll start attending, we'll maybe give, like might even join, probably not, just leave it open there in case something doesn't work out. That's absolutely foreign to the New Testament. These believers, they didn't stand over the church as consumers. They joined the church in communion. All those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about three, they were added to the church, they were added to the fellowship that day about 3,000 souls. They were added to the fellowship and they devoted themselves to this fellowship. They had one Lord in common, one faith, one baptism in common. They had the same God and Father. They were filled with with the same Spirit. In Christ, they were family. As Michael Horton once put it, a church is it's not a group of friends that I choose for myself. It's a family that God chooses for me. And sometimes God has a way of choosing people you would not have chosen in a million years yourself. I'm sure that this was the case in this church in Acts 2, but they were family. They made it work. They were devoted Let's look at this this devotion to the fellowship here. Remember, we we discuss the nature of this devotion on the first Sunday in the series. We saw that devotion is is disciplined. Devotion is disciplined, meaning it was intentional and purposeful. They didn't drift toward this kind of life together. They, They were intentional. They were purposeful. They were disciplined in their pursuit of these practices. And not only disciplined, this devotion was sacrificial. It was disciplined, it was sacrificial. So they didn't just put a small amount of time aside every week, a manageable amount of time aside every week for one another. They sacrificed their time and their schedules. They sacrificed uh, their, their resources, their hobbies, their interests in order to be devoted to this. And not only was it disciplined and sacrificial, it was ongoing. It was an ongoing devotion. It wasn't an overnight sensation here today, gone the next. They weren't devoted for a few weeks or a few months. They, it was ongoing, disciplined, sacrificial devotion. It was consistent. And we read this quote from Ray Ortland in the first sermon of the series. It's worth repeating. Ortland said this about this verse. When the early believers converted to Christ, it never occurred to them to fit him into the margins of their busy lives. They redefined themselves around a new, immovable center He was not an optional weekend activity along with the kids' soccer practices. They put him and his church and his cause first in their hearts, 
first in their schedules, first in their budgets, first in their reputations, first in their very lives. They devoted themselves. Unmistakable evidence that the Holy Spirit was being poured out. They were devoted, they were committed. And that's what made this community so attractive and compelling. And, and often, you know, we're comfortable just talking, we're comfortable talking about Je- the devotion to Jesus and devotion to his cause. But we start to fidget when we talk about devotion to a church, being devoted to a particular fellowship of believers. I read this last week that on average today, those claiming to be born-again Christians stay at a church on average for about three years. And that's just sad. I'm sure there are a number of reasons for that, some of which are not necessarily uh, blameworthy. You know, we tend to move around a lot more nowadays. Life is more transient. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about when people leave churches, when there's abuse or immorality in the leadership. I'm not talking about being sent from your church to to be a part of a church plant like many of you uh, have um, experienced just recently. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that a large reason we often don't stay at churches for very long is just this sort of drifting from church to church that takes place. Slipping in, slipping out, never knowing, never being known, never committing, never being held accountable, never, never knowing and being known by others. Attending, never belonging, and moving on when we've had enough. That's, that's just not fellowship. That's not, that's not koinonia. But even for those of us that have joined a church and verbally committed ourselves to a church, I fear that this this devotion we see here might still be somewhat foreign to us. We should ask ourselves regularly if, if our devotion, if our commitment and devotion to one another is based on Christ and our mutual bond in Him, or if it's based on our own felt needs and desires. Because if that's the case, we'll only be committed insofar as fellowship contributes to our own flourishing and, and improvement. That's not real commitment. That's not devotion. That's not true devotion. That's not actually giving yourself to others. That's not actually knowing and being known by others. That's simply using others. As one pastor once said, the higher we value our personal privacy and freedom from commitments, the shallower our grasp of of fellowship will be. Reduced to idle chit-chat over steaming cups of coffee before and after the worship service. It's worth asking, are we, are we committed even when it's inconvenient, even when it's sacrificial, even when, it, even when it hurts, even when there's nothing in it for us? And not only when there's nothing in it for us, but when there is something in it for us, pain and sacrifice and inconvenience. Look at how deeply this devotion to the fellowship went in this church in, in Acts 2.45. You see, they lived life together. It simply says, all who believed were together. They were together so much that Luke says, he doesn't just simply say they got together a lot. He says they were, just literally, they were together. Verse 46 says that day by day, they were going to the temple together, sharing meals in their homes. At the temple, they were gathering for their public assemblies as a church at Solomon's Portico, which is like a really big assembly hall. 
And not only that, but they were going to the, to the prayer hours, the hours for prayer at the temple. They hadn't quite broken off from the Jewish temple practices yet like they do just a few chapters later. And not only that, but, but after these events and these gatherings, they went to one another's homes for meals to discuss what they had learned and, and what the Lord had done in them through the preaching of his word and to celebrate what he had done in their midst. You know, they didn't have Fifth Street Brew Pub or Press. So they went to their homes, they shared homes and food with one another, showing hospitality to one another. They assembled together often, they got together in their homes, they were devoted, they were committed to the fellowship, and so they just couldn't get enough of each other. I want to exhort you, beloved, be faithful in showing up and just being together, just just, just showing up. Be faithful to coming to our public gatherings on the Lord's Day. Be faithful to showing up to your city group. Be faithful to show up frontline prayer meetings every other Tuesday. Be faithful to have those church members, that church member over to your house for dinner and break bread with them in your home. Be faithful to spend time. Be, de- be faithful to be devoted to the fellowship of believers. Be faithful to be devoted to one another. Be committed, be devoted to being, together, to, to being present to one another. Be generous with your time even when it's inconvenient. And and not just with your time. Luke goes on in verse 45. He says, they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This fellowship, this, this communion, this partnership that they had drove them to not only live life together in, that, in, in the time that they shared together, but they were sacrificially generous to one another. Now, I know, I know this particular text has been used by, by cults and communists and communes to justify all sorts of heinous things. It's been used by religious leaders and, and politicians to force people to liquidate all of their personal assets and to turn them over to the leaders. And that's not what was happening here. This is completely voluntary. As we see later in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, they could have, all just, they could have kept their personal property. They didn't have to sell it or give it away. But as this church was sharing life together, those with much saw that their brothers and sisters who had little needed their help. And they knew that this age, that this age with all of its possessions is passing away and that in the age to come, they had treasure where moth and rust could not destroy. And they knew that their brothers and sisters in Christ had a special claim on them. And so out of the abundance for their, of their love for one another, they were generous. They sold their possessions and contributed to the saints' need. They were generous to one another. And so church, let, let me exhort you, we must be generous to one another. Sacrificially generous to one another. When you see a brother or a sister in need in our fellowship here, don't look the other way. When you see that email or that, that Facebook post, Asking for help with, with child care or asking to bring a meal to someone who just had a baby or asking for a ride to a doctor's appointment or, 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 or asking you to visit someone who is sick or in, in the hospital or, 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 or if someone's in a dire financial situation, we as a fellowship of believers cannot look the other way. We can't look the other way. One of the deacons, Sarah or Brian or Mike, ask for you to, to help and serve. And when an area of service comes up, respond. 
When that family ministry need comes up and you get that email from Emma, respond. Don't make excuses. Even, even if it's, listen, even when it's inconvenient, even when it's inconvenient, because listen, true fellowship doesn't work on terms of consumerism. True, true fellowship is not consumer-friendly. This kind of fellowship is one of devotion and sacrifice and self-denial, the kind of fellowship wherein we pick up our crosses and deny ourselves. We must be willing to be inconvenienced for one another. Well, when was the last time you were inconvenienced to serve someone in this church? When was the last time that you were inconvenienced to serve this community? I know, I, listen, I know, I know what it's like to be introverted and to really value your, your alone time, your, your, your private time. I know, I, I, one of the things that, I, uh, that bothers me so much about this stage of my life is that I have like hardly any alone time. I'm like never alone. It drives me crazy. And I know, I know that everyone is so busy and that you have so much going on. I, I understand that. So often we just use those things as excuses to be self-focused and to live in self-sufficiency rather than in fellowship, true fellowship, rather than being devoted to fellowship. We're called to be generous to one another. That's what we're called to. We're called to be generous to one another with our time, with our ability, with our, our, our finances, our possessions. We're called to sacrifice for one another. We're called to be inconvenienced for one another. I just close with reminding you, you're, you're not your own. You are not your own. You, you, your time is not your own. Your possessions are not ultimately your own. Your gifts are not your own. Your life, your life is not your own. If you think your life is your own, come talk to me after service and we'll just sit down and have a chat. Your life is not your own. Christ purchased your life 2,000 years ago. It belongs to him. Your life belongs to him. He paid for your life on the cross. He suffered and was wounded and bled and was crucified. He bore the wrath of the Father and the fury of God's judgment so that you would be his, so that you would belong to him, so that you would have fellowship with him, so that you would have participation in the things of Christ. He suffered all that so that you would have a share with him in eternal life, so that, so that all that he is and all that he has before the Father would be yours, so that you would be accepted by the Father and become a child of God, so that you could stand before the judgment seat at the end of the age and say, dressed in his righteousness alone, I'm faultless to stand before the throne. Everything that he has is now imputed to me. It's mine. And he wasn't just inconvenienced for this. He sacrificed himself entirely. He sacrificed himself entirely so that you would have a share in his riches and righteousness. So that you would have eternal life. So that you would belong to him and to his kingdom forever in the world without end. So that you would belong to him. If we're not our own, if we belong to Christ... If we've been purchased by him, then as John Calvin once said, let us forget ourselves and all that we have as much as we can. Let us forget ourselves. Let us forget self-forgetfulness is key here. If we're not our own, we stop putting ourselves first. It means that there are no parts of your life that are off limits. 
means that there's no part of your life that you hold back from Christ. We're to give ourselves wholly and completely to him. And one of the main ways that the spirit-filled church saw themselves living this out in a way that the spirit is beckoning us to do that still today is by giving ourselves away to God's people. Because if you belong to Christ, you also belong to your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you have claim in Christ's accomplished salvation, your fellow believer holds a special claim on you. Therefore, Veritas, be devoted to the fellowship. Be devoted to one another in your devotion to Christ because Christ devoted himself to the church, to his people until death. Live life together. Be sacrificially generous to one another. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. That's actually, that's what is declared over you at your baptism. You are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, declaring over you that you are no longer your own. You belong to the triune God. You have been united with Christ in a death like his and and in his resurrection. You've been united with Christ. You've been made one with Christ. And if you've been made one with him, then you've been made one with his people too. And that's what we're going to discuss next week. Baptism is a means through which one is added to this fellowship. Let's pray.